one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. My name is Kave. I am the host of this humor adjacent medical podcast. Uh, joining me today. Wow. This is an exciting episode for me. Two people I'm very excited to talk to. One, the audience knows very well at this point, Dr. Sophie Balzora. Dr. Balzora, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here tonight with you all. I am excited as well because joining us today, we have Nicholas St. Fleur. He is a science reporter at Stat News. He's written extensively for the New York Times, The Atlantic. He covers racial health disparities. He writes children's science books. He's an all-around great guy, and I'm super excited to have him here today. Uh, Nicholas, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I, I enjoyed your, your intro there. You said it was a fun one. That was certainly a fun one. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. It's better when guests don't know and they come in <laughs> and they, they get that for the first time. So uh, thank you for putting up with that. It gets a little bit more professional uh, at, at times. No, let's keep it unprofessional. I like that. <laughs> I I, I mean, that our, our professional isn't that professional. So, um, okay. So I've read a lot of your work and I really, uh, I like your writing a lot. Um, first of all, can you tell people what Stat News is, uh, what it's about? Yeah, uh, of course. Thank you. And again, thank you both for having me on, on the show. This seems like a lot of, a lot of fun. Um, I will do my, my best to supply as much information as I can. So Stat is a medical news site. We cover the pharmaceutical industry. We cover hospitals. We cover COVID. We cover health disparities. We cover health tech. And we're a subset sort of of the Boston Globe. Um, we're about six years old right now. And we've just been doing some really 
really fantastic coverage of, of, of COVID especially. Um, last year, two of my, uh, three of my colleagues were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for their, in the category of breaking news for their COVID coverage. I enjoy STAT because it gives me the ability to speak with, you know, patients and physicians and, and just really learn more about the medical world, but also learn more and more about like the, the human side, the stories here. Um, I cover, as you mentioned, um, health disparities, health equity, uh, which is a, a newer beat for me, if you will. I've been covering it about, you know, almost two years now with STAT. And it's just fantastic to be able to, 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 to write stories about, um, I have a bit of a focus on, on, on Black people and, and other people of color. And it's been fantastic being able to speak with doctors and, and patients from those communities and, 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 and share their stories and their concerns and try to, you know, make a difference through my writing. So that was a little long winded, but that's, 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 stat makes me passionate about what I do. Perfectly winded. Oh. Perfect. Well, winded. perfectly winded. I like that. Well, winded. Is that a, yeah. is that a phrase? Well, winded. It, it is like now it. trademark house of pod. Yeah. I mean, I'm just curious as to how you made that switch. Um, like first to stat, but then also to focus on health disparities. Um, yeah. Something that inspired you or something personal? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I, I have mostly been a science journalist. So before I came to stat, I was at the New York Times. Um, I was on staff there for about three years, and then I was freelancing for them for about another three-ish or so years. And covering dinosaurs and mummies and um, space, um, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, which super fun, definitely an area that I very much enjoy. But I had always longed to write more stories about health, to write more stories about, you know, uh, health disparities, about the Black community, especially, or at least with a focus. Um, as a Black journalist, that's like an area that I, I, I find very close to my heart. Um, I find as a journalist, you know, covering those types of stories or where I feel like I'm doing the sort of work that I've been kind of trained or prepared to do. And, you know, it really hit hard after the um, murder of George Floyd and, you know, the protests we saw and the kind of racial reckoning in this country um, that hit at so many different levels. I mean, it hit in journalism and it hit, of course, in medicine as well. And I was approached by the editors at STAT to, um, you know, apply for this fellowship. And I, I jumped at the opportunity, um, you know, to, to, to be a part of STAT. I had always admired their work. Um, you know, obviously this was during COVID and I was still writing about, you know, my dinosaurs and my, my, my mummies and such. But, you know, this was the biggest story of, of, of my lifetime. I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to cover COVID and I felt my 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 passions were to cover its impact on you know the black community especially um but to also delve deeper into into health disparities so you know i applied and luckily i i, I got the, the the fellowship and i was working for stat you know it's both a global story it's very much a national story but it's also a, a historic story when we talk about um racial health inequities in this country and, and the root cause of them it's historic but it's also so 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 present today um well, so it's it's been yeah it's been really it's been pretty fantastic so uh sorry to interrupt uh, no you're not interrupting at all <laughs> well i'm just gonna apologize a number of times in this program uh and i uh, apologize for that so um along those lines along along those lines about you having this bigger wider picture of things and seeing the history of things it it brings up 
one of your uh, articles that you wrote that mm -hmm. I kind of want to discuss because I think it goes into some really interesting and complicated areas. Um, so back in October of 2020, you wrote about two black university leaders mm -hmm. who uh, urged uh, their their campuses to join a COVID vaccine trial. And mm -hmm. then you described the backlash of that. But in your article, you, you, you delved into some of those things, some of the history mm -hmm. as to why that was so complicated. Can you first tell me what the the reaction that these black leaders had to trying to get um, their campuses involved and and if that surprised you or not? You know, it's it's very much one of those stories of, you know, time will tell. Um, looking back right now, you know, it's 2022. Um, I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted as as many people are because, you know, we 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 understand the science, um, but during those early days, before while the the vaccine was still being developed, you know there was a lot of a lot of trepidation around COVID. There was a lot of concern. There was a lot of worry about you know this this vaccine being developed so quickly. Um, calling it Operation Warp Speed didn't exactly help. <laughs> um, you know, this Operation was... <laughs> Reckless Endangerment. <laughs> right, right. And then this was happening, you know, under the, 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 the Trump administration, many people of which did not, you know, trust the Trump administration, especially with, you know, those early days when it came to, um, you know, not like not wearing a mask, right? He was a big proponent for not wearing a mask during a pandemic. And so people were people were rightfully so, you know, a little like like very much hesitant about the the, the the vaccine before, you know, before it came out, before the rollout and such. So this was during the early days of the, the vaccine clinical trial. Um, I spoke with uh, two presidents, one from Dillard University and one from um, Xavier University. So these are two historically black colleges or HBCUs, um, both in New Orleans. And both of these presidents, you know, they they had a conversation. They were talking about getting, um, you know, enrolling in the vaccine clinical trial. Um, when I was speaking to um, uh, Walter uh, Kimbrough, the president of Dillard, he had mentioned that, you know, he saw uh, Dr. He saw Tony Fauci speaking about how, you know, we have to make sure these vaccines work for everybody um, in order for them to work for everybody. We need to make sure we have people from, you know, all different groups, all different ethnic groups, all different, um, you know, racial groups participating in clinical trials. So they decided to lead by example, they rolled up their sleeves, and they participated in uh, those vaccine clinical trials. They decided to take the next step and then send an open letter to their campus communities, um, to inviting, saying, hey, you know, from our understanding, enrollment numbers of Black individuals in these vaccines are, are very much lagging. We want to make sure that we're well represented. So when this rolls out to the whole country, like we, we know it'll work on Black folk. We, we want to make sure of that. So they sent out this letter, but people, people, people were scared by it. They were really, they were taken aback. There was a swift backlash because as is, you know, all too well known when it comes to um, 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 kind of this mistrust of the medical establishment um, in the, the, the black community, a lot of people, a lot of folk do mistrust the medical community. A lot of that has to deal with, um, you know, historical um, issues, you know, these, 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 these historical scars, if you will, in the collective psyche of, of our, of our community. Um, you hear words such as Tuskegee, you hear words such as, you know, Henry, names such as Henrietta Lacks. Um, so that's one part 
But then you also have the present day. You have people who go see doctors and feel like they're not being listened to. Um, you feel like they're not being, um, their pains or, or they're, are not being uh, heard. You know, they might have family members who have bad experiences at the doctors. So in many cases, they, they don't trust them in, in these cases. Um, also this happening during COVID, you know, during the very beginning of COVID, uh, everyone's favorite like celebrity was able to get a, um, a test, right? But many people in these communities, wh where were the tests? They weren't there. So it's like, yeah. we don't have these tests, but all of a sudden you want to then bring us in for the vaccines. And also people didn't want to be the first in line. They didn't want to be guinea pigs. They didn't want to be, you know, test subjects. So a lot of people were um, angry at the universities for potentially, as they put it, like suggesting that their students enroll in these, these clinical trials. Um, so it was, it was just, it was eye opening to really see that backlash. I spoke to some students and, you know, you heard what they were, um, you know, you heard their, their, their fears. I mean, I spoke with one student who was actually a PhD student in, um, you know, the biological sciences and even said, Hey, like, you know, I understand this. Like I understand vaccines are important. I just don't, I just don't want to be first in line. Like, I don't want to deal with that right yeah. now. Um, you know, they were getting a lot of backlash all over social media. And that's kind of how it like popped up into my circle. And so I spoke with them about it. And the story also goes into what the black, um, the HBCU medical schools were trying to do to help increase enrollment as well. And the difference um, in those cases, they had like, um, they had like this, this kind of rapport, but there's also historical like trust in these communities that mm -hmm. may have helped them mm -hmm. when it came to recruitment. That's the thing about these stories like Henrietta Lacks and the mm. Tuskegee experiment and more than that, of course, is that they they injure in so many ways. They're, there's an obvious injury to the people that were involved. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. then it's what's happened since then. It's keeping uh, these communities from being represented at the mm -hmm. same time. Uh, and like you've mentioned also that there is a gap in the information we know in mm -hmm. vaccine clinical trials that report on ethnicity and race, but how are we going to get that, that information if we can't get those people involved and how are we going to get those people involved if they have this underlying mistrust of the medical okay. community? I'm assuming you see this a lot nowadays still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, know, just to, oh, oh, go right ahead, Sophie. So I was going to say that, um, you know, it's interesting how I think we, we're all used to speaking and it's, it's like X, Y, and Z group has this distrust, but it's also like, X, Y, and Z institution is potentially not trustworthy, right? Yeah. I think that um, th that's like the other side of this is that um, it's almost like a trust we have to earn. And I, I understand it's kind of like this catch 22, right? But it's, a, but it's just, um, yeah, I mean, we have, as a medical institution, I, I, you know, we have so much to um, own up to. And I think like it, it, it is a very hard sell, but for very good reason. So I think it's like, it's also that we're just not really trustworthy. It's like, yeah, there's this, there's this incredible, incredibly shameful and horrible history um, in medicine um, of being racist and whatnot, but it's just like, it, it is, there, there's so many present day examples, mm -hmm. right? There are so many present yeah. day examples. So I, I, it's, it's really tough. Yeah, um, and, and to piggyback off what you're saying there, Sophie, I mean, in terms of present day examples, I think it was, either the same day or maybe within that week when the presidents of these HBCUs sent out this letter to that community, uh, ProPublica had just published this 
this this this damning investigative piece on Ochsner Health System, which is the same system that was offering some of these vaccine clinical trials, showing that you know during the early days of the pandemic, they were turning away black patients, older black patients who had COVID, back to their families. Mm-hmm. You know, for them to 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 honestly like die with with their families, but in doing so, you know, you're they're spreading it to their families, mm-hmm. and so it's like you want me to trust this same like medical system that you know Provoca just wrote this big investigative piece on, showing that they were you know not doing right by black people, and here I am a black person, and you have the vaccine clinical trial, and you want me to trust that they're going to do right by me? It's like, so it's yeah, it's very much so. These things are still happening today which lead towards this mistrust. So if if I can ask you a question, actually, as a medical professional who is also black, like when you have black patients who don't trust the medical system because of this history of racial inequity and they they don't trust you because of that. I mean, is that is that exceptionally frustrating? I mean, how do you manage that situation where you're like, yes, we have this situation. We have this history. Uh, of the stuff that we did that was not okay. And there's still things happening today, but I still want you to trust me. How do you, how do you navigate these situations? Well, you know, I think especially recently, I'll say in the past, maybe five years, I think that people have been more um, forthcoming and, 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 and verbalizing that I, I looked for you because you're black. You know, and I think that maybe people had done that, but maybe not had been so frank about saying it. So, you know, compared to my colleagues, I do find that I think I see more black patients. And, um, and so I think that they can, they can be skeptical of the institution of medicine, but still trust you as an individual. Um, and, and then my hope is that I will get them to the place that they need to be right. Um, because a lot of times I will hear like a very similar story over and over again. Like I, I just felt like, I mean, just like Nick was saying, like, I felt like you weren't hearing me. I felt like you weren't giving me what I needed, um, you know, in terms of the doctor they were seeing previously. So they're hoping that at least if there's someone who looks like them, they'll be at more of a level playing field. Now, of course, you know, just because, you know, um, not all skin folk or kin folk, as they say, but, um, but I think that there's at least like a, a, a higher likelihood that there may be some more, um, you know, more of an understanding there, right? So I I think that there's like an opportunity to still trust the individual while still Mm -hmm. being very, um, you know, very skeptical of the institution of medicine. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, you know, there's plenty of evidence about uh, patient physician concordance as it it goes with uh, race, you know, and I think that that's why, I think that that's why there's more satisfaction and and potentially better outcomes, um, despite the fact that we know that all these disparities do exist. Mm-hmm. Nicholas, right. let me let me then ask you the uh, question that would require about uh, three days of intense discussion to get through, but I'm going to unfairly ask you to answer it with one soundbite. What is the? I'm just kidding, of course. What is the 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 step forward? Where do we go from here to improve things from your perspective? Mm. Um, like the medical institution needs to have a moment of you know deep self-reflection um they need to also listen very much so to their doctors of color their black doctors who have voiced these concerns for for so long i mean i speak to so many so many of my 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 sources are are, are doctors of color are, are are black doctors and they 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 you know 
it's one of those things where they'll lay it out to you. They're the experts and they'll lay out the steps that need to be done to, 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 to fix this, to rectify this. And the problem is the people in power are not necessarily listening. So there needs to be, I don't know, there needs to be more listening. There needs to be more, I hate to say, I, I hate to say there needs to be like more, more, more action. Cause there's so many people who are trying to do so much. Um, there, there are so many people doing really good work in this area. I just think, I just think there needs to be more, I don't know. I guess, I guess it is more, more, think- more people in power need to need, need to listen and need to take it more seriously is what I would think. Um, but I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm the, 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 the journalist. I feel like people like Sophie definitely have more ideas. <laughs> well, you have an objective yeah, view too, though. I mean, yeah, journalism moves, I mean, moves things forward. I feel like, I mean, especially just thinking about the pieces that you've written, I feel like they, they speak, they speak more impactfully and loudly than like us trying to change things within an institution, quite honestly. Um, you know, I think even there's just this reputation of, of, of um, organizations and institutions um, trying to look towards health equity, maybe because they believe in it, but also because it's just, it seems like it's the right thing to do. And if you're not doing it, then, you know, people may, may um, view the institution very differently and go elsewhere. So, I mean, there is that self-serving aspect. And I think a lot of that is because now people will be called out, whether it's formally through, yeah. um, through journalism that you write, or just, you know, something that's much more informal, like on social media or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely listening, like you said, also just believing, I feel like there's still like, we're still making a case for it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it's insane. Um, I had, a, I had a friend of mine from college who's an orthopedic surgeon and he's black. And, um, there was an article, I forget what, what yeah, it was probably the one by my colleague, Ushali McFarlane. It was instead, right? yeah, it was, it was, she <laughs> okay. did one about, um, the, the whitest specialty. I want to say it was, Yes. wait, what was it? Uh, it, it was about um, orthopedics, about how over like, I don't know if it was like 40 or so years, it's barely budged past like yeah. the low, low percentiles. I'll, I'll send it to you That's, guys. And that she's, sounds about she's right. excellent. If you want to speak with someone who's, who's been doing really fantastic work in this area, my, my colleague Usha has been really pie, um, has been really spearheading our coverage of, of health equity at STAT. She's so fantastic. But he, he was telling me he was still making a case to whatever like main national org um, for orthopedics was that like, you know, there needs to be like a formal DEI committee or just like more, you know, it needs to have more power because of these, these numbers. And in response to this article that got, you know, an incredible buzz, um, you know, it brings things to light. It brings mm-hmm. things to light. So yeah. And like, if I could just, if I could just add to that, um, you know, you were saying a bit about how, how journalists, how we can kind of elevate these issues, but so many of these issues I'm finding through, through, through um, you, sources like yourself and your colleagues, um, you know, through med Twitter, through black med Twitter, you know, the, when, when, when people find an issue, they tweet about it, they retweet it, you know, it gets into a lot of our feeds and, and we notice, and that's how a good amount of my stories have really popped up and I, you know, I go ahead and I'll, I'll, I'll DM you or I'll DM some of the, 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 the people who are, who are chatting about this. And I'll say, Hey, like I'm a reporter. I'd like to learn more. Can I have some time and we could talk about it? Yeah. I ask you guys a, a related question. I, I feel like in today's news cycle, things move by fast. People will find something. Journalism will bring something to light and people will start to pay attention to it. Like, Remember, there was like a week last year when people cared about Palestinians 
and like it'll happen it'll come and then it'll go mm-hmm. do you guys have because i feel like these disparity issues they're getting they're getting some light on them now and yeah. they're having a moment but are you guys worried that this is just a moment like people are going to then turn their attention somewhere else do you feel like we need to how do we keep this in the spotlight mm-hmm. so this doesn't move out of the new cycle you know, it's happening already i had a conversation um with um uh dr michelle morris over at the new york city um you know department of of, of health and she was in a situation where um, she had worked at, at um, um, Brigham over in 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 Boston, Boston, right? So yeah, she had worked there beforehand, and you know she had published a story called like um, an uh, the agenda and uh, the agenda for anti racist medicine or the anti racist medicine agenda. Um, I apologize, I, I I'm I'm recalling all of these off the top of my head here, but. Basically, she, you know, helping make the case for for anti-racism in medicine. And she had done like a, a study looking at, you know, um, who's getting the best cardiac ther- um, care at, at her hospital. Um, and it was shown that, you know, black patients were not. And then the next steps to rectify that. And as maybe you guys had heard, but like earlier, either it was last month or the month before that, mm-hmm. um, you know, there were protests outside of the, 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 the hospital led by neo-Nazis and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, um, 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 alt-right like like a group protesting in front of the hospital you know, her work in yeah in front of the hospital so so we're right now at a part where and she she had laid it out to me so beautifully about like we're at that part where the backlash is coming that counter thing you know you see people talking about like you know critical race theory and you know everyone's that's become like a rallying point for for people um you know in terms of like we need to ban it from schools and we need to ban any type of anti-racism in like hospitals or in medical education. So, so already that counter protest, that counter movement is, is happening. And as the way she was beautifully explaining to me was like, anytime you have any kind of like civil rights push or something for, you know, the advancement of, 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 of black folks when it comes to equality or equity, um, there's always that counter back. There's always that pushback. It's like you go forward and then push back. And I feel like that's, the stage we're entering right now or, mm-hmm. or kind of have been. Um, so in terms of like, is this still in, in the news? How do you keep it in the news? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm going to keep reporting on these issues. I hope many of my colleagues in, um, you know, health and science journalism continue reporting on it as well, because it is just so important, but it is also so, so I guess disheartening to see that, to see yeah. what a, what a big pushback there has been. Um, compared to yeah. what we saw in like the summer of 2020. I, I was going to say, I feel like there is some hope. I feel like, for example, a friend of the show and uh, a, another guest co-host, T.R. Levin, he works with the uh, the Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. And they recently just put out something showing that colorectal cancer screening programs have started to erase those disparities uh, in mm-hmm. outcomes uh, with uh, across uh, black and white members. So there's, there's a little bit of hope in that. A lot of that, mm-hmm. I think, has to do with the kind of reporting you guys are doing by bringing this to light. Um, I, but, you know, one thing I feel like, I feel like this subject is also being used in ways that I, I didn't uh, predict and, frankly, don't necessarily understand. And I'll explain mm-hmm. what I mean. I, and, I, and I like to get you guys away. And I, I recently listened to a, uh, a debate um, 
between Jay Bhattacharya. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He is this epidemiologist at Stanford. He wrote or he helped write the Great Barrington Declaration. It's one of these medical doctor contrarian pieces of like uh, COVID related nonsense. It's like, we shouldn't do anything. We should just let things be as they are. Uh, and then between him and Jeremy Faust, uh, who's all. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Also a friend of the show. And there was a, de- a debate about uh, masking and vaccine mandates. And Jay Bacharya is against mandates. He's against uh, masking mandates or vaccine mandates from, from what I could gather and one of the things he brought up was that he he was saying that these mandates are uh, a tool to hurt minorities. They're a tool to to hurt the disenfranchised. Um, he didn't back it up with a lot of arguments that I could see, and I don't really quite understand that. But I have heard that that used. I don't see a lot of backup to it. But have you experienced or have you seen anything that would support that? that vaccine mandates, mask mandates in any way are are harder or worse for uh, minority populations? I mean, the, the vaccine mandate, I think, you know, I could see that there may be issue, particularly in the beginning, because there were disparities in terms of um, vaccine rates. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that a lot of essential workers and people who um, were disenfranchised and historically excluded had difficulty accessing vaccines, taking time off of work to get vaccines. And then if you mandate a vaccine in order to be employed, then that can, that can you know, widen disparities. So I, I can see how that could be. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think as, as vaccines became more widely available and you, know, you can get them at any pharmacy and what have you, then it's a different argument. But I think in the beginning, you know, there, there, were, there were very similar rates um, in terms of disparities with uh, with COVID as you were, as you saw with vaccines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still for, um, I mean, a thousand percent for vaccines and masks, but I'm just saying that I could see how that can play out. Yeah. I mean, it's a better argument than I heard. <laughs> I mean, I, I should also say. What do you say, think? I'm, cu- I'm curious to. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think, you know, when I was in the early days of uh, reporting on the vaccine during like the beginning of like the rollout of cell, I was speaking to, I think it was Arthur Kaplan over at um, at NYU, um, NYU yeah. who was saying that, you know, so much money has been spent on, and I want to say it was him, I may be incorrect, um, it's a, one of my stories, but so much money has been spent on the development of the vaccine and, you know, you know the distribution and, and all of that, but 
not enough has been spent on like the communication campaign to tell people how this was developed, what the science is, why this is important, why this is not something for you to fear. And I think we really just dropped the ball in the very early days of not explaining to people, you know, why this vaccine is important, why it will save lives and why you should get, you know, a shot, two shots and now, you know, a booster. Um, So I think the problem, I, I would say a problem is that, you know, we just, we, the, you know, the U.S. should have done a better job of communicating the importance and the safety of the vaccine while they were developing the vaccine and then throughout. I mean, there are people who've done, you know, amazing job, like Kismikia Corbett has has been, you know, mm-hmm. doing a fantastic job. I, I've been following her, like, kind of Twitter, like, like spread. She's gone to, like, over 80 different, like, like, like little, I guess you could say like kind of congregations of, of, of people just explaining what the science that she's done. Um, she's done like so many um, 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 talks that whether it be at churches or community get together, like that is fantastic. And we just needed like so much more of that, more of that even yeah. more of that. And there should have been like a lot of like, there should have been money flowing in on, mm-hmm. on just on that communication campaign. I just feel like that wasn't there. Yeah, that's a very that's a very like U.S. thing, right? I mean, I think it was Fran- Francis Collins is his name, the head of the NIH, mm-hmm. or maybe former head, and and Fauci both said that there was this underestimation of the impact that um, you know the the lack of understanding and the misinformation would have on people failing to wear masks and failing to get vaccinated. Yeah, um, you know, and that uh, that lack of public health education has really been completely detrimental. Like it was just, you know, it was, there was such an overestimation of the idea that once the vaccines were out, people were actually going to comply. Um, mm-hmm. And if you look at rates of other things like flu vaccine, and of course now this resurgence of like people not even getting measles vaccines and yeah. things like that. And, you know, it, that, that was of course going to be a huge concern. And that's what we've seen. I think, so, I think, oh, not to cut you off. No, no. I think what I underestimated was, you know, I, I understood, like I had a lot of concern, especially for the black community because of, you know, historical mistrust and such. What I underestimated was the impact of vaccine misinformation and how powerful and prevalent and nefarious that was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, someone had interviewed me and, and wanted me to speak about, you know, anti-vaxxers uh, back in like, I guess it was like November or so of 2020. And at that time, when I thought of anti-vaxxers, I really just thought of, you know, like the people who are against like the um, the MMR, you know, vaccine, like the people who are against like those childhood ones, you know, the the, the Kennedy guy. Like that's what I was thinking in terms of like anti-vaxxers. Jenny and, you McCarthy. Know, yeah, 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 Jenny McCarthy. And we were at a point, I felt like as a society where we looked at, you know, that group of folks and we all kind of collectively agree, like they're like, they're nuts. Like we're not going to listen, like, like, like who... We, we don't agree with that. We, we're not nuts. And then you saw so much money being made off of propagating um, anti-vaccine like notions, uh, uh, like pushing this kind of anti-vaccine um, agenda. And it's really it's gotten it, it, I just did not expect it to proliferate the way it did and mm-hmm. to really impact so many different communities. And mm-hmm. One thing I'm bringing up is um, I remember during the summer of 2021, I was, uh, you know, listening in on a lot of like clubhouses, right? Back when like clubhouse was like the popping thing. Yeah, what happened? Um, <laughs> and like, yeah, yeah. And I, I would listen in 
on like conversations about vaccines. And then you listen to people who come in and talk about how, you know, completely bogusly, these are quote unquote doctors who don't actually have medical degrees. They have like degrees that come from like, like you can buy them online more or less, but they basically are saying that, oh, such and such took the vaccine. And, you know, I know someone who knows someone who died from taking the vaccine, but you know what they should have taken? They should have taken my supplement. And they're literally shilling their supplements (laughs) to people saying, this is what you should be taking instead. And I did not, I underestimated how big that was going to be, how many people were going to really profit off of this misinformation. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we've seen it with like huge podcasters, right? We've seen it with news stations we've seen it with politicians like i did not realize how big that was going to be so that's where i i faltered right is there still some messaging that we have to improve upon to for vaccines for the african-american community well i can't speak for the whole community certainly but um i think with the patients that i see who are black um you know there's still like real questions like people are still scared you know, like I saw a patient recently for colonoscopy and she's like, I finally got it. Like I did it. I cried when I got it. And I remember seeing her in December and she still hadn't, you know, she still received her vaccine, but she eventually did. And so I think mm-hmm. people just have real legitimate fears. Like mm-hmm. there are, there is a subset of people who are quote unquote anti-vax certainly. And I think that those people are going to be incredibly difficult to reach. And, mm-hmm. and um, that's kind of a that's a lot of effort for, I don't think much success, mm-hmm. but there are those people, like those people who are just legitimately scared, you know, um, but otherwise go to the doctor, get their mammogram, get their colonoscopy or like, you know, quote unquote, doing everything that they should be doing. Um, I think those are people that are still reachable um, and they just, they just need to go to their doc. They just need to talk to a doctor that they trust and have people around them who've received it. You know, I definitely tell all my patients that I have um, and, you know, I think that that's really helpful, um, and just being honest with them. But I think that those people who just are legitimately scared of the vaccine are people that you can reach, um, who are coming to you, coming to you in the office, not people who are just like anti-vaccine, but kind of are very closed off. Mm-hmm. I feel like what we're, what we're kind of experiencing now is a bit of like, in some cases, vaccine, uh, fatigue, um, you know, people not wanting to get their booster. Uh, you know, we saw Omicron come in mm-hmm. and you have people who are fully vaccinated and boosted still get COVID. I being one of them, I had COVID um, around New Year's or so, even though I was like as careful as can be, still got it. This is the, this is the, 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 the challenge and the opportunity for, for more medical communication in that, yes, people were triple vaxxed and still got COVID, that does not mean the vaccine didn't work. What we need to do is show them and properly communicate to them the number of lives or the, the amount of lives of people who were saved because they were triple vaxxed or because they had you know their first shot and their second shot. Uh, we need to do a better job of communicating, in my opinion, just the people who did end up in the hospital, who did ended up dying, you know, the percentages of those people who were, you know, fully vaxxed first, mm-hmm. not vaxxed at all. Um, I think, I think that just needs to be further hammered in. And I think what really still needs to be hammered in is, you know, the effects of long COVID, you know, we still don't know everything about it. I've mm-hmm. spoken with long COVID patients. Some of them have gone through hell, mm-hmm. through hell. I mean, I was triple vaxxed. Um, and then it, for weeks after having COVID, I was so lethargic. Mm-hmm. I'm still getting things that are making me wonder, like, is this like effects of long COVID? What is this? 
and I, I feel not enough people realize that this is something like we don't know like how long you'll have these effects and they could be really detrimental to your future, you know, your, your future health. So we need to continue, you know, getting vaccinated. We need to continue with, you know, I would say with, with masking and with these, these precautions. Um, but we need to also show that like you can get COVID after being vaccinated. Yeah. You can still get like long COVID symptoms, but that's still better than dying. Yeah. And many people who are unvaccinated, unfortunately, get are getting COVID and dying. And we don't want that. We don't <laughs> no, want that at all. No, we don't, especially not our listeners. We already have too few. So yeah. Oh, man. If I if I could Make ask sure. a question to to, yeah. to you two, I was having this conversation with one of my colleagues and you know, I thought before the the, the pandemic, I thought I understood what the meaning of public health. You know, I thought it was really to do the best you could to protect as many people as possible. But at least from what I'm seeing as a reporter's perspective, public health kind of seems to me like it's not just public health. It's also political health. It's also economic health. Mm -hmm. It's like, what are the decisions that we make that will help best keep the economy going or will best keep, you know, kids returning to school or this and that? And that's something I wasn't. I guess, prepared for, or that I didn't, I guess I didn't realize about, you know, this whole sphere of public health. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting topic. One of the things that these great Barrington people, these medical contrarians will keep pointing out is the detrimental effects to the economy. Mm -hmm. The truth of it is, I don't think the economic decisions are, or that, that part of it weighs as much in my mind in public health, because you can make an argument either way. Like I, I would make the argument that people getting COVID and dying is much worse for the economy than taking safe steps yeah. like vaccines and mask mandates, following that science and doing things the right way. You could make the argument that it's actually better for the economy. I, and you see people make those arguments. So you can see them back and forth. You can see both sides of that argument. People make that economic argument. And, and I, I think that's not really our strength. Historically, doctors are not great with money. Um, you can see from the background of my house right mm-hmm. now, where it's not uh, something we're great at. So you have been the garage, a very <laughs> depressing garage. So like, you know, it's not our strength and you could make good arguments either way for that. So I, I prefer it when public health sticks to the, the medicine, sticks to the science, because then I think everything else plays out from there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one thing that we've talked about a couple of times during this is colonoscopies. Uh, we talked mm. about them in terms of public health and you recorded your own colonoscopy and you yeah. did it at the age of 30. And I think you, it went on Good Morning America, right? You did. For it Good was. Morning. Yes. So you, all of America got to see my colon. <laughs> by the by the way, fantastic job with your prep, buddy. My goodness. I'm very <laughs> impressed. Sophie, did you see how good his prep was? Beautiful. It was really good, man. Listen, we that's appreciate what my, those things. You know, that's what my doctor said. And I thought she was just, you know, being nice as a doctor. But hearing that from you two who have probably seen a good number of colons, I, now now I, I really I wear that as a badge of honor. Yeah. I mean, we, we only saw what was edited into the, that piece, but I assume it's all pretty good. So I have the first, full thing if you want to see. <laughs> first of all, tell us why you had it at 30, because that is younger yeah. than we typically do colonoscopies. Tell us why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, um, what really, like, what spurred me to get a colonoscopy so young, um, what really kind of shook me into into action was the death of Chadwick Boseman. Um, 
Well, I actually remember where I was when I saw that he he had passed. I was, you know, just in my apartment back in the Bay Area and I was scrolling through my phone and I I saw some 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 someone tweet like, you know, man, it seems like little black boys are losing all their heroes. And I thought that was weird. I thought that was cryptic. And then I kept scrolling. And I saw like, I believe it was like a CNN headline that said like Chadwick Boseman, you know, died. Um, and then I clicked on it and it was like from colorectal cancer. And I was just like, whoa, like, mm -hmm. really? Mm -hmm. I have a family history of that. My mother had uh, colon cancer when she was about 34. Um, luckily they found it early through a colonoscopy and they were able to, you know, save her, save her life. Um, but I knew that was something that, you know, is part of my story. Um, but I had never really done the, 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 the steps towards actually getting a colonoscopy to, 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 to get that checked out. But after seeing Chadwick Boseman die, I mean, you know, you got, you know, the Black yeah. Panther, you know, King of Wakanda, the guy at peak physical fitness. I'm like, I'm, I'm nowhere near that. And I could take him like, OK, <laughs> I really I need to get this checked out. I, I, I was like, I really need to get this checked out. I actually emailed my my editors like that either that day or the next day. I was like, hey, listen, like I I want to do something like some kind of project, whether it be like a photo essay or, or something like looking at color. Uh, colon cancer because this is this is part of my story and you know I'd be open and willing to share it as well and one of my editors has suggested maybe we should make this into like a video and I was I was very much like yeah I I, I think we should go for it um you know and and speaking to to um gastroenterologists speaking to, to to doctors and people who have researched this I learned more and more about the rise of early onset colorectal cancer um, along with just the health disparities about how you know black folk are, are more likely to get it more likely to die from it mm -hmm. and it's just like it just really it really it just really hit me you know I mean I spoke with doctors even including Sophie here and just like learning about it and just realizing like wow this is such a serious issue. So that, that further empowered me to want to, you know, do this as a, as a, as a story, as, as a video and actually, you know, go through with it myself and, 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 you know, be vulnerable with, with folks and, and show yeah. my own colonoscopy. And it's, it's strange because my mind fluctuated from being like, oh, you know what, it'll be fine. It's just a simple procedure. You'll be there mm -hmm. to sometimes I would think to myself, you know, what if I do have cancer? Like I'm, you know, I'm yeah. showing this to the whole world um and then at one point i was just convinced that i had it because you know i i had learned you know my mom had it at 34 i was closing in on 30 i realized that i should have had it like you know years 24. before that i think at 10 years before that 24 mm -hmm. so i was overdue for this this was like a birthday gift overdue if you will so at that point i was very much like i i probably have it and you know what like i'm just maybe i could just help someone maybe i could help someone you know they'll yeah. see they'll see you know, a young black guy who, who looks like them and they'll listen to their bodies. And, you know, yeah. I learned more and more about the signs of colon cancer. I learned about like, you know, what to look out for, but also I just, I just, I learned about the stigmas and how people don't really want to talk about this, mm -hmm. especially in, in the black community, especially amongst black men. So, cause it's such a, an invasive, like part of like, like it's, it's such a personal part of your body. Right. I mean, yeah. so I'm happy. Like I, I, I went through with it. I'm happy that I was, you know, all, clean in terms of like, I didn't have uh, colon cancer um, and that I was physically clean. Um, but I was, I, I did not expect the outpouring of support afterwards. I had many people reach out to me via email, social media, just saying, thank you for doing this. Yeah. Uh, I, I really, I didn't, I didn't expect the story would be as big as it was. I didn't think it would be like on Good Morning America. I 
had no idea. Um, but I'm happy that it reached audiences and hopefully like, you know, maybe someone who, who realizes that something's not quite right down there. Um, you know, maybe they saw it and they're like, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to get it checked out. And you know, yeah. that's, that's what it's for. Man, I mean, I think- it's very brave. Uh, Cause you don't know what you're going to find. Right. Um, especially yeah. with your family history. And I, I did, uh, you know, that part of that, of that piece that you wrote, um, you know, how your mom was like, are you sure you're okay with this? Like, cause you really never know what you're going to find, but I thousand percent think that you're, you save lives with that. I mean, people can be really scared of that type of procedure, even if it's like one that, you know, for, for Kaveh and us, we do it, for Kaveh and myself, we do it so many times a week. You know, you forget that just like, some people are just terrified of it. Yeah. So to get them into the office is a big deal. So when they see things like that, um, they're like, hey, you know what, I, I think I can handle it, you know? So yeah. I, it's absolutely saving lives. I think the more types of um, examples like that, um, where people can see things that closely and intimately, you know, the better. Yeah, and I, I'd be remiss if I if I didn't mention that you know along with my own colonoscopy, I wrote this this long feature about um, you know research showing uh, research by uh, Dr. Charles John uh, by um, Dr. Charles Rogers who was looking at you know these hot spots across the country, these hot spots of death where folks were. Uh, more likely, young men were more likely to die from early onset colorectal cancer, and I, I, I kind of wrote this story, this narrative of this 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 man uh, Omar Carter who died from um, uh, colon cancer at um, forty, may have been forty six or so. Uh, I, I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but just his final moments, you know realizing that something was wrong, but also not wanting to go to the doctor, mm-hmm. you know, being scared to kind of go to the doctor, even when you had bleeding coming from your rectum, um, th- those kind of stigmas, um, you know, he was very similar to, 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 to Chadwick Boseman in that they were both, you know, physically fit, um, you know, younger men in that sense. Um, but also just speaking to his, 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 his wife, um, uh, Jahan Carter, who, is so so strong but but what 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 the story kind of shows is like the the importance of having that patient advocate and that was something that i didn't i didn't realize how many moments there were in his story where you know they could have just said okay like you know bye like go home or whatever and it could have been even worse i mean it was obviously very bad he ended up succumbing from 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 that scourge from colorectal cancer but if his wife hadn't been so vocal saying, no, we need that scan now. No, you're not discharging him until we get that scan for them to, you know, realize, okay, he needs treatment now. Uh, I didn't realize just how many barriers were stacked against, um, against everyday folk just looking yeah. to really get good care. Right. Yeah. Totally. I, th- I, I think it, what you did was really punk and awesome. And being that vulnerable I mean, you're right there's no more vulnerable a position to be in on you know national television but it's so important you did it because katie kurt doesn't speak to everybody you know yeah. god bless her for doing it but you know it takes other yeah. folks to to do it to to show it you know if i if i could if i could like kind of echo those sentiments like i i mentioned this to my editor and it, you know i was like you know we could do it maybe as like a photo essay or or he was like maybe a video or video or something i was like okay but like how would you doing it be different from Katie Kirk doing it? And I said to him, Katie Kirk got a colonoscopy. Like what? <laughs> I was like, what? And he's like, and my editor like looked at me and they're like, where are you? I was like, and I was like, and I looked up, I was like, I was like, like 
10? Like, I when this happened, like, I know it was a very pivotal moment in, in you know, colonoscopy. He was like history, 10. Oh my God. Sophie. It happened a long time. Jesus, how old a, are we? Holy not a, hell. Not a long time, but it happened a good amount of time ago. Yeah, and, and you know, you, yeah. so I was like, once I said that, they were just like, oh, oh yeah, you know, there's a whole like kind of generation of people who didn't know that. So, you know what? Yeah, and I, right. it coming from me as like a young black man, um, you know, it's hitting a different kind of demographic as well. Just, right. you know, young men and also young black men and just black men in general. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. You know, this is a disease that affects so many audiences and we need to show, we need to fight the stigma for, for, for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I've kept you longer than I promised I would keep you. So, uh, and there's so much more I want to talk about. We haven't even talked about. Yes. You know. If I if I could make a quick quick plug, I meant to make it earlier, but um, please talk about the yeah, podcast so, in particular. Yeah, just a just a quick one. So, um, if you're interested in learning like more about you know medical mistrust or racial health inequities, Stat is launching a podcast that I'm hosting called Color Code. We're hoping to launch at the end of this month. And we'll be delving into some of these issues. We'll be looking at issues such as like the 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 aftershocks of the the 1910 Flexner report and how it closed some black medical colleges and how that might still be felt today. We're looking at some of the algorithms that um, ha- might lead towards that might be programmed with racial biases. We're looking at issues of mistrust. So if this is if health equity is something you're passionate about and want to learn a bit more about, uh, be sure to check out our podcast at Stat. Um, it's again that's called beautiful. Color Code, and and wow. I'll be your host. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful! I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. I am. I am uh, very excited to hear it. Uh, we'll... You two are, are the first people who I haven't interviewed slash worked with that I've told them about. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's honored. awesome. We're yeah, honored, we're doing... and we're very excited we're... to hear. It. We'll we'll uh, post links to it once it's available too. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, But thank you so much. Just thank you both so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Um, All right. Let's talk a little bit. I could tell how much you honored um, and respected his, uh, him as a guest because you said the Zoom the day before. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You might not know This is supposed to be like a funny podcast, right? So I can just (laughs) It's supposed to be. I mean, This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.